0: Welcome to the Talking Immigration podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jessica Bolter, an Associate Policy Analyst with the Migration Policy Institute. Jessica, before we begin, would you tell us a little bit about your immigration experience?
1: Sure. And it's great to be here with you, Katerina. So I've worked at the Migration Policy Institute for about four years. Uh, Previous to that, I was briefly working at an organization that provided assistance to detained immigrants in in the Maryland and Virginia area. At the Migration Policy Institute, I work mostly on US immigration policy. I tend to focus on enforcement, both at the border and in the interior, as well as asylum and refugee issues. I have also done some work on migration in Latin America. I will just say the Migration Policy Institute, where I work, is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, independent think tank based in Washington, D.C. We work on migration policy in the U.S. as well as around the world.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So for most of this podcast, we've introduced a lot of basics around definitions, the types of visas that are available, and some general processes. But one area we have not really touched on until now is enforcement. It's a huge topic, and I plan to have more in-depth discussions on various pieces involved. But for now, I want to give a basic overview as it pertains specifically to the human sides of things, as opposed to maybe the enforcement of illegal contraband, for example. The first question I have is maybe very basic, but what is the technical type of law that someone breaks when they arrive in the U.S. without documentation. Is it a criminal offense or can you just put into perspective what's the legality of what happens when someone crosses the border illegally?
1: Sure. So that's actually a great question and it's not super straightforward. When someone crosses the border illegally, the action of crossing the border illegally is a criminal offense. If it's the first time that someone has been caught doing it, it's a misdemeanor. Um, If they have previously been deported and are caught crossing the border illegally again, it's a felony. These charges are not always prosecuted, but they can be. There also is a difference for after someone has crossed the border. So... If someone crossed the border illegally and they weren't caught doing so once they're living in the u.s even if they're living without documentation that's that's not a criminal offense so if they're not caught in the act of crossing the border or immediately after crossing the border it's not a criminal offense to be living in the u.s without documentation it is still against the law, so it's a civil violation, and it has immigration consequences, uh, such as being subject to removal from the country. But that part isn't a criminal violation.
0: Really interesting. I had, I really did not realize the mm-hmm. distinction between yeah. that it's different if you're just living here versus actually being caught in the act of crossing. Um, generally, who is in charge of enforcing this type of immigration law?
1: So the Secretary of Homeland Security is broadly in charge of enforcing immigration law. And within the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, most enforcement authority is based in two agencies. So one is U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and the other is U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. ICE is mainly responsible for enforcement in the interior of the country, and CBP is mainly responsible for enforcement at the country's borders, um, land, air, and sea borders. And CBP does include border patrol as well. One slight uh, nuance there is that the border zone where CBP can actually conduct searches without warrants, where CBP has enforcement authority, actually extends 100 miles from all U.S. borders. So CBP, even though it's mainly working at borders, also has some authority to enforce immigration law within the country as well.
0: How much does the U.S. spend on immigration enforcement?
1: The U.S. spends a lot on immigration enforcement. It spends more on immigration enforcement than on all principal federal criminal law enforcement agencies. And those law enforcement agencies include the FBI, the DEA, um, ATF, US Marshals, and Secret Service. So to put that into numbers, in the federal fiscal year 2020, which spans October 2019 through September 2020, immigration enforcement agencies received $26 billion in funding. Meanwhile, the principal federal criminal law enforcement agencies received $19.5 billion. So that's $6.5 billion less. And this has been the case for years. This isn't a new thing. Since at least 2006, this has been the case where immigration enforcement is receiving more funding than these law enforcement agencies.
0: Since 2006, so after 9-11 and everything like that.
1: Right. So DHS was actually formed in 2003, um, and it was formed kind of as a response to 9-11. And so the data that I've been able to find goes back to 2006, but yeah, it could have been the case before then as well.
0: So one online report that I found from the Pew Research Center estimates that about Of the roughly 45 million immigrants that live in the U.S., about 10 and a half, they estimate, are living in the U.S. without documentation. Mm -hmm. With all that budget that we have going into immigration enforcement, within that, does the U.S. prioritize how it tries to, I guess, either stop ongoing immigration or identify and detain undocumented immigrants who are currently in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question, Um, and it's kind of varied over time. So it's been a common understanding that U.S. immigration enforcement agencies don't have the resources to arrest and detain all 10 to 11 million uh, people living in the U.S. without authorization. and sometimes that's meant that the agencies will focus more on people who have criminal convictions, people who have entered the country more recently in 2014 or really in in a lot of the in a lot of the Obama administration, there was a lot of focus on prioritizing, who would be arrested so that resources could go, could go toward arresting people who might present the most danger to communities or people who hadn't yet established significant ties in the U.S. Because, you know, more than half, over 60 percent of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. have been here for more than 10 years. So there's a significant population that that has really deep ties to the U.S. So there's often been a prioritization of people who have fewer of those ties or who have committed crimes in the U.S. However, the Trump administration immediately rescinded these priorities that have been set in place by the Obama administration, and they're no longer priorities for who should be arrested. So someone who's been in the U.S. for 15 years and has three U.S. citizen children is now just as vulnerable to arrest and deportation as someone who's been here for one year and has a criminal conviction.
0: And one of our episodes, we talked about DACA and kind of the Mm -hmm. state of removal. That still applies regardless of what the priorities are or aren't, is that correct?
1: Right, so if someone has one of these statuses like deferred action where they've been granted for an action, if they have removal by the government, then they they would not be subject to arrest if the government has given them those protections.
0: Do you know what percentage of detained immigrants have a criminal history or what percentage of the total number of undocumented immigrants?
1: Yeah, so I can speak to both. You know, currently there are about 20,000 people detained, which is actually much less Than there are typically in in the Trump administration, there's typically been around 50,000 people detained at any given moment. In the Obama administration, it was somewhere in the thirty thousand. Currently, there's many fewer people detained because of the coronavirus. So I think it's probably most helpful to if we want to get kind of a a broad understanding of. Um, how many people in detention have criminal convictions? To look at a time before the before the pandemic, if we look at the end of September 2019, so a year a year prior to now, there were 51,000 people detained. 32% of them had criminal convictions, and another 11% had pending criminal charges. But that's about 0.1% of the total unauthorized immigrants in the US. If we look at the total unauthorized population with criminal convictions, my organization MPI actually estimated back in 2016 that that population stood at about 820,000 or about 7% of the unauthorized population. So it's still definitely a minority, but we can see that, that the number in in detention is really quite small.
0: Right. So even if you add the those with criminal or with pending criminal convictions of those people in detention, there's still almost 60% who have no criminal history who have been detained.
1: Right. And that's because a lot of the people who are in detention are people who are coming over the border, and a lot of times since those people are such new arrivals, it's unlikely for them to have criminal histories.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between ICE, which primarily enforces immigration in the interior of the U.S., and local branches of law enforcement, like our local police or the state agencies or even highway patrol? Do they work together, or are they related or totally separate?
1: So, Mostly, they they don't work together. I think the most common relationship is between ICE and local jails, actually, which are usually run by the sheriff's department. So when someone is booked into a jail and has their fingerprints taken, then their fingerprints are run through immigration databases, in addition to federal criminal databases, to see if they might be identified as someone who is subject to removal and ICE gets alerted about that. That program is called Secure Communities, and it's in effect throughout the United States. If ICE wants to take that person into custody and put them into deportation proceedings once they're released from jail, they might request that the local jail hold the person past their release date so that ICE can come pick them up. That request to hold someone for an extra period of time, up to two business days, that's called a detainer. It's up to the local jail whether or not to honor that detainer, although there are some state laws that govern whether or not they honor the detainer. So, some states like Illinois and California prohibit local jails from honoring detainers, while other states like Texas and Florida actually require it. And then Some places, like New York City, allow detainers to be honored only in cases where the person being held has committed serious crimes. So that's kind of the main relationship between ICE and local law enforcement.
0: Okay, and it's really a a statewide issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some cities that have their own policies on this, but as it's become a topic that's more in the mainstream in the past five ten years states have started to
0: legislate on it what is 287g i vaguely recall having a little bit of experience working with catholic charities in dallas that that was a discussion on whether local law enforcement should act to enforce immigration law is that correct or can you can you tell us what it what it is
1: Right. So, yeah, that's, that's the other way that local law enforcement can be involved with ICE. So, 287G actually refers to a section of immigration law that allows DHS to deputize local law enforcement officers to perform some immigration enforcement functions. So, currently, only local law enforcement officers who are working in jails can be deputized under 287G. So in the past, there have been task forces of local police who are deputized to go out into the community and arrest immigrants. That hasn't existed for some time. So currently an immigrant would only interact with a law enforcement officer who's been deputized under 287G if they were already being booked into jail. Some of the things that 287G officers can do, they can assist ICE in interviewing people who are in custody to determine whether they might be subject to removal. They can also issue detainers and some documents to begin removal proceedings as long as an ICE officer signs off on it.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about ICE and some of the ways it does its job in the interior? How does it go about trying to enforce immigration when people are already living here?
1: Sure. So ICE mainly makes arrests of immigrants in two ways. One that we have kind of just been talking about is by arresting people who are coming out of the criminal justice system. So arresting people coming out of jails or prisons. And then the other is by sending officers out into the community to make arrests. The people arrested in these community operations are mainly either people who have already been ordered removed by an immigration judge, but they haven't complied with the removal order, as well as people who were previously in criminal custody but were released without ICE taking custody of them. So ICE will use local or national databases to try to track these people, will sometimes conduct surveillance of them, going about their daily routine to figure out where they can arrest them, and then they'll end up making the arrest Uh, sometimes at people's houses, sometimes at their places of work, sometimes if they're going to a court hearing, or really any other place where the person spends time. Sometimes during these operations, ICE officers will also arrest other people that they encounter along the way, such as family members and friends of the person they're targeting. Um, And these, these are called collateral arrests. During, during the Obama administration, these collateral arrests were pretty limited, but the Trump administration has opened this possibility back up.
0: Are raids different from kind of the general way that ICE operates, or is ICE the agency that would conduct raids? And could you talk about what those are exactly? What I have heard about raids tends to be of a workplace, and my question would be, do they need warrants to go to a workplace? Does the Place of business know that they're about to happen. How how do those work?
1: Right. So people end up calling a lot of different things raids. And ICE always maintains that it doesn't conduct raids, but rather does targeted enforcement actions. But yes, there are cases of worksite enforcement where ICE will bring a bigger team to to conduct this enforcement. And I think that's what what usually ends up getting called raids. So in a case like that. ICE agents might decide to conduct a conduct a raid of a work site because they have an ongoing investigation of violations occurring there, you know, to follow up on leads about an employer hiring unauthorized immigrants. ICE agents usually arrive unannounced. Legally, they are allowed to enter and search any public area of a work site without a warrant. So, for example, in a restaurant, this might be the dining area that that's where members of the public can go. That's where ICE agents can go without a warrant. To search a non-public area of a worksite, such as a restaurant kitchen, for example, they either need to have a warrant signed by a judge or they have to get the employer's consent. So, if they don't have a warrant, but the employer allows them to enter the non-public area, that's
0: allowed. If someone is living here undocumented and say they don't have any kind of criminal history or are here for some other reason, maybe they overstayed a visa or maybe they're trying to reunite with family but don't have a legal means to do so, do people who are undocumented living here, or I guess the right question would be for people who are living here who aren't citizens, should they need to carry documentation all the time? Like could a police or somebody ask about your authorization to live here if you got pulled over for a traffic ticket, for example?
1: Yeah, so a lot of places have laws that police actually can't ask about immigration status if they pull you over for a traffic violation. And police can't make arrests based on just the fact that someone is in the U.S. without authorization. Police can't make immigration arrests. However, if, for example, police, a police officer pulled someone over for a traffic violation and decided to take their fingerprints for a criminal charge, then they could be entered into the system that might alert ICE. For people who who do have permission to be in the U.S., there actually is a provision of the law that says they they do have to carry documentation with them at all times and produce that if they're asked. If police pulled someone over who doesn't have documents, or if even if immigration pulled someone over who doesn't have documents, they still have the, the right to remain silent. They don't need to say that they don't have documents. They don't need to say that they are here without authorization. So there's There is a requirement for people who do have documents to carry them with them, but there's still some protections for people who don't.
0: And when somebody is caught whatever way by ICE, what happens then? Are they immediately taken to like a detention center? What happens if they don't speak English or if they have children who happen to be citizens? What what would happen in various situations where a person might be detained by ICE?
1: Right. So yes, they're generally taken straight to a detention center and booked in there. There can be some discussion. So, for example, if someone is the sole caretaker for a child, they might just be taken to a detention center and booked, and then released. Um, you know, still put into still put into removal proceedings, still starting that process of trying to remove them from the country, but there generally is a recognition if they are the sole caretaker or if they, for a child or for someone who might be sick or something like that, that uh, it's not reasonable to detain them. You know, there are always people who do fall through the cracks though. So there are always stories about kids getting left behind when someone's detained, although there's, there's usually an element of discretion in those cases. ICE is supposed to provide interpreters uh, if if people don't speak English. One of the one of the major issues there has tended to be with indigenous languages, um, which there's a shortage of interpreters for Central American indigenous languages, and that's actually where a lot of a, a lot of the Migrants coming from Central America now, particularly Guatemala, do speak indigenous languages. So that's been an ongoing issue in immigration detention.
0: Is an immigration detention center essentially a jail for immigrants? And is that, are they paid for by DHS or who runs and oversees them?
1: So I think it's fair to call them a jail for immigrants. Immigration detention centers are supposed to be equivalent to pre-trial detention in the criminal justice system. So detention conditions are not supposed to be punitive because people are not being held there as punishment for a crime. The point of immigration detention is just supposed to be ensuring that immigrants show up to their court hearings and show up for removal. But we know that in reality, conditions at detention centers can be pretty horrific. There have been some government oversight reports that have found that the food being served in these centers isn't safe to eat, um, or that bathroom conditions are insanitary. You know, there have been reports of inappropriate uses of solitary confinement. So it's it's not clear the degree to which this idea of non-punitive detention is actually followed. In terms of who pays for detention centers, DHS pays for all of them, but ICE, which is the component of DHS that is kind of in charge of detention, ICE usually doesn't manage them. So ICE often contracts out either to private prison companies or to states or localities to operate detention centers in their local jails or prisons. So many times, immigrants are actually detained in part of a local jail as part of a contract between ICE and and that
0: jurisdiction. Interesting. How are deportations carried out? Um, so once someone is detained, maybe ICE determines that they should be deported. Is there kind of a general time frame from which that happens? And then in my mind, I'm thinking, I doubt that would happen on kind of a commercial airline. Are there special secure planes and buses or how do they work?
1: Sure. So the length of time that it takes to carry out a removal order really varies. It can depend on the country that would be receiving the deported person. It can depend on ICE's workload. But once someone has received a final order of removal, authorities in their country of citizenship have to recognize that person as a national of their country in order for them to be deported back there. And they also have to issue certain travel documents. So some countries like Mexico and Guatemala, which receive the majority of deportations from the U.S., have a streamlined process to do this. And deportations are typically carried out within a few weeks. But countries that either don't receive many deportees or that actually tend not to cooperate in this process, sometimes because they see deportees as criminals and don't want them coming back into the country, countries in that situation can make the process take longer. So if they're stalling on recognizing the person as a national or issuing travel documents, there's actually a Supreme Court ruling that says that once someone has been waiting in detention to be deported for six months, if it's unlikely that their country of citizenship is going to accept them back in the foreseeable future, then ICE has to release them. In terms of how deportations are actually carried out, some of them actually do take place on uh, commercial flights. Most people are deported on charter flights when they're going to countries, particularly Central American countries, for example, that receive a lot of deportees. But if there aren't that many people being deported, then they might be on a commercial flight. They're usually shackled on these flights, both charter and commercial, and will have a a security guard there with them. And I will say that most for deportations back to Mexico, most of those take place by bus or on foot just at the U.S.-Mexico border.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I wouldn't even have thought about the, the receiving country and their need to participate in this process, but that makes so much sense. You couldn't just deport somebody to a random country, hopefully. Right. Yeah. And the issue about them not wanting to receive potential criminals or, uh, you know, just there's so much in immigration that I think until you start asking questions and diving in, you don't even think about. Yeah. My last question is, what are sanctuary cities?
1: Sure. So there's, there's no official definition of sanctuary cities. So the term actually emerged out of the movement in the 1980s, where churches declared themselves sanctuaries for Central Americans whom the government was refusing to grant asylum. It has evolved since then, where now it's kind of a broad term that is generally used to refer to cities that place some limits on their cooperation with ICE. So this could range from prohibiting police from detaining people based on their immigration status, which is probably one of the more minimal protections because police already can't do that. But some places, you know, put that that into law or an ordinance. Some places might prevent city employees from asking people about their immigration status. And then on the other end, with much more limited cooperation with ICE, some cities might you know, refuse to notify ICE when immigrants are going to be released from custody or refuse to honor detainers, refuse to let ICE access uh, some of their local databases. So there's kind of a a spectrum of ways in which cities can limit their cooperation with ICE. And often cities anywhere on that spectrum get labeled as sanctuary cities.
0: Well, Jessica, thank you so much for talking with us about some of these enforcement issues and I thought it was just a really illuminating and interesting conversation about how this works, what the priorities should be and how things are carried out. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work on this or the Migration Policy Institute in general?
1: Sure. So you can find the Migration Policy Institute at www migrationpolicy.org. We've got some great interactive data tools. All our reports and articles are up there. Um, would highly recommend that you check us out there.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration.